Shalom, I'm Rabbi Scott. Welcome to the ministry of Beth Yeshua Messianic Synagogue in Fort Myers, Florida. We hope and pray that this teaching will be a blessing to you. If you would like to support our ministry, please go to our website, www.bethyeshuafla.com to donate online, or we can accept your donation over text. Please text the word GIVE to the number 239-747-7526. Thank you for your support. Blessings and Shalom. Okay, Shabbat Shalom. You've, you've probably heard the story by now, the story of Esther. Uh, certainly if you're in a Messianic or Jewish background community, um, you've heard it for years and years and years. So what I want to do is rather than, than do another summary of the story, which all of us are aware of, I want to skip to one moment in the story. Skipping ahead in the story, um, this is the moment where it all matters. Esther is making her appeal to the king. Esther's people have been sold to be destroyed. Esther's going to make her appeal to the king. Haman is there. Haman is the viceroy. He's second in command of all the, all the kingdom. Uh, obviously favored, obviously loved and trusted by the king to some degree. This is a very insecure king, but he's obviously trusted by him. Um, Esther is about ready to accuse him of treachery. Not to mention this idea of killing all the Jews was a, an idea that the king wholly endorsed. In fact, it was Haman's idea, but the king was willing to pay for it or subsidize it, in effect. So what are we doing here? Esther's likely to get herself killed. And in this moment of all moments, when it all matters, when the argument matters, what does Esther say? Uh, chapter 7, verse 3, Queen Esther answered, says this, If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king, grant me my life, don't put me to death. This is my petition, spare the life of my people. This is my request. And she says this, verse 4, For we have been sold. We have been sold. What is she talking about, if we have been sold? And then she goes on to say, if we had been sold merely as male and female slaves, I would have remained silent. But we've been sold for destruction, slaughter, annihilation. What on earth is she talking about? She spent three days crafting the perfect argument in fasting and prayer, and this is what she comes up with. We've been sold. What is that supposed to mean? In Esther chapter 3, we have this, if it pleases the king, let an edict be written to destroy them. So we're talking about annihilation. We're talking about killing all the Jews. Uh, Haman is willing to pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry out this business to put it into the king's treasuries. So a, a, a talent would be 60 to 80 pounds. At 60 pounds, that's approximately 600,000 pounds of silver. In today's money... Today's price on silver, yesterday's price on silver was $26.91, so a little under $27 for a pound of silver, which puts you at somewhere in the neighborhood of north of $235 million that Haman was willing to take out of his petty cash drawer and pay in order to annihilate the Jews. This is serious business. Uh, it says the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, uh, the enemy of the Jews, the king said to Haman, the silver and the people are yours. Do with them as you please. In other words, I don't want your money. Take your money and kill the Jews. This is a sympathetic audience here. Haman and the king, at this point, are on the same side. And after three days of fasting and prayer, Esther says, we have been sold. So 
this is the selling of, 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 of the Jews in Shushan in Persia. But again, what is Esther hoping to gain here? What, why is she countering with this? Only herself, the Esther of Shushan. It's almost as if, the, 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 does she have enough capital? Does she have enough stock in order to say, upon my word, choose, Haman or me? And, and in a sense, this Esther is a little bit like Helen of Troy from the Greek legends and mythologies. So uh, said so, to be so beautiful, she indirectly caused the Trojan Wars. Um, in, in similar fashion, we have a showdown between Mordecai and Haman. Mordecai the Benjamite, Haman the descendant of Agag, of Amalek. We should not be surprised. The hatred of Amalek is in every generation. So here the Jews are clearly sold. The queen is sold with them. And what she's going to do is try to win back her life, her deliverance, based on her graciousness and her reputation, her ability with the king to be charming. That's it. That's all she's got here. Everything in the balance. And she chooses to, to, to create this argument, this moment, saying, my people have been sold. What is she talking about? Do we have another time in the history of the Jews when something significant happened from being sold? Why would Esther choose that argument? What does it mean to be Jewish and to remember being sold? Well, yes, it's the life of Joseph. Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery. In fact, if we back up and get a macro view of this, we see some remarkable parallels between this narrative of Esther and the times of, of Joseph. In the Egypt narrative, the Jews, via Joseph, were sold into slavery. Joseph was the first one sold into slavery. But then he gained favor with Pharaoh, right? He was considered as a son to Pharaoh, but that favor was lost and subse uh, subsequently. And that slavery was, uh, was the result. They were almost annihilated. They were almost destroyed. And then came the deliverance of Adonai, which is the, the, uh, the Passover and, and deliverance from Egypt. And that's the narrative of Joseph in a grand view. This idea of, of going into slavery, but, but rising to prominence and then finding that that prominence or that, uh, that, that favor goes away and your life is at risk. And then the deliverance of Adonai. In the Shushan narrative, the narrative of Esther, the people of Israel were actually taken captive first by Nebuchadnezzar. They were taken by the Persians subsequently. This is how they came to be into slavery by King Jehoiakim, later by Zedekiah and some others. But effectively, they were under slavery first in Babylon and then in Persia, in Shushan. And yet, under slavery, they began to prosper and have favor. We have the narratives of Daniel, who rose to favor. Uh, we have the narratives of others living lives of ease and prosperity and exile. But later, the treachery of Haman and this deeply flawed and unstable king meant they were sold and appointed for death and destruction. Do you see the roller coaster of human history? Do you see the roller coaster of the Jews? We go into slavery, we rise to prominence, and then somehow that gets taken away, and now we're at risk, and we're waiting on the deliverance of Adonai, the deliverance of God. Technically, who sold Joseph into slavery? Who actually did the deal? It was the brothers, or specifically, it was Judah. It was Judah's idea 
to sell Joseph into slavery. The, other, the, the previous idea was to kill him, and that would have been somewhat effective, but they thought maybe they would just sell him into slavery. Um, Judah sold Joseph into slavery, but what was the net effect? All the Jews went into slavery eventually. Do you see that? We're looking at, we're kind of painting broad strokes here. It's the macro view. It's the bird's eye view, okay? Judah sells Joseph into slavery, but then all the people of Israel end up being enslaved. That's the consequence. All the brothers in the tribes of Jacob were sold into slavery. Who else from the biblical record was sold? Yeshua. Yeshua was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Who sold Yeshua? Technically, Judas. Judas is the name in your Bible, frequently, the English translation, which is in the Hebrew is rendered Yehuda, or which would be a variant of Judah. So we have Judah selling Yeshua. What was the result of that selling? If the result of Judah selling Joseph into slavery was the enslavement of all the, Jew, of all the people of Jacob, what was the result of selling Yeshua? It was his crucifixion and his death, right? First and foremost. The result of Judas and Yeshua was the death of temple Judaism. Ultimately, the result of Yeshua and, and being crucified, because it wasn't just Judas who accomplished this, it wasn't just this, this character Yehuda who accomplished this, it was the priests and the Pharisees who accomplished the crucifixion, the mock trial and the crucifixion of Yeshua. And so what we have here is we have in some 20 to 30 years after this, the death of the sacrificial system in the temple that was destroyed at the hands of the Romans. And there was no place to bring the sacrifice subsequent to losing the temple. Just a side note, one of the things that people perhaps don't realize is the sacrifices didn't end when Yeshua was crucified. So it's, it's, it's year plus one. It's Yom Kippur after Yeshua was crucified. And what are they going to do? They're going to do the Yom Kippur sacrifices. And the next year they went and they did the sacrifices at Passover and so on. The sacrifices for Yom Kippur, Sukkot, the following year, the Passover lamb, all the sacrifices and offerings, the counting of the Omer, the bringing of the daily portions, all that continued after the, the crucifixion of Yeshua and the resurrection of Yeshua. The temple sacrificial system wasn't eradicated. It didn't disappear until the temple was destroyed. In fact, even Paul later, when he was an emissary to the Gentiles, and on one of his trips, he returns to Jerusalem. And because of some conflict and some, uh, some uh, contention uh, among the people, he decided to go to Jerusalem and went to the tam temple and made sacrifices to complete the vow of a Nazarite. This is what Paul did. So this idea of the sacrificial system, this is in, in Acts uh, chapter 21. We, we have Paul going into the temple to complete the requirements for the vow of the Nazir from number six, uh, number six, uh, chapter six, uh, verse 13. This is the Torah of the Nazarite, the law, the Torah of the Nazarite. When his period of separation is over, he must be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Verse 14. He is to present his offering to Adonai, a year-old male lamb without flaw as a burnt offering, 
a year-old female lamb without flaws, a sin offering, and a flawless ram as a fellowship offering. And then later, verse 17, he is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to Adonai, along with Matzot. So there's a, there's a great deal of, of detail going into this sacrifices of the Nazir. This would have been what Paul went to the temple to do at the time that he returned to Jerusalem when the temple was still standing some 20 to 30 years after Yeshua had been resurrected. The point of all this is that the sacrifices continued, but this all came to an end when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And I believe, and, and, and many uh, teach this, that the reason the temple was destroyed was because the priests and because of Judas and his betrayal, the selling. Le this led to the destruction of the temple and the loss of the worship of the sacrifice and the offerings. This isn't the first time that they were sold. Under Jeconiah, they were also sold into slavery under Nebuchadnezzar, and once again, the temple was destroyed. So this idea of us not having a temple for the last 2,000 years, this isn't the first time we've been here. We've been here before. One last comment on this, this selling of Yeshua. Remember in, in, in Bereshit, in Genesis, Lot, Abraham's nephew, and Abraham were vying for the same ground. They didn't have enough room to, to raise their flocks, so they needed to part ways. And so Abraham said to Lot, choose which way you want to go. If you go to the west, I'll go to the east. If you go to the east, I'll go to the west. And uh, Lot looked around and he saw the valley of the Jordan was well watered towards Sodom, and so that's where he ended up. Uh, it says that uh, Lot, Abraham's nephew, moved his tent to Sodom. And later in chapter 18, Adonai comes to Abraham. Um, do you have this? Chapter 18, verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I have chosen him that he may command him. And then verse 20, skipping down, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. And then in verse 21 it says this, I will go down to see whether they have done, see what they have done. I'm going to go down and take a look at this. I'll go look for myself, says Adonai, to see what their sin is about. All right? So, question we ask, who went to Sodom? Who ended up actually going to Sodom? What does it say? Verse 22. The men turned from there and went to Sodom, but Abraham stood still before Adonai, and Abraham drew near and said, and now we have Abraham drawing near to, to Adonai, and they appear to have a discussion. It's actually a negotiation for the result of Sodom. But the men turned and went on their way. And then in chapter 19, verse 1, we have this. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So where did Adonai go? We don't have any record of him in Sodom doing what he said he was going to do. I will go down and see what their sin is all about. I will go down to see what they've done. When is another time when we see Adonai going down, going down to see what they've done? We have this at Babel, the Tower of Babel. Right? In Bedashit, Genesis chapter 11, they built a tower with its top to the heavens. Verse 5 says this, And the Lord came down to see. The Lord came down to see what there was to see. 
And what's one more time that Adonai came down? Perhaps? I submit to you, Yeshua came down to see. He came down to see and to be seen. And it says this in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Adonai came down to see. So we have this recurring pattern throughout the story of the history of mankind. Again, we're taking things from a broad view. We're zooming way out. Our interactions with Adonai, these repeating epochs of human history. We have Abraham coming into the land, and then he goes down to Egypt, and then he returns to the land. We have this ping-pong effect, back-and-forth effect. We have the children of Jacob in the land beginning to work out the promise to Abraham. And then the famine comes, and they go down to Egypt. And then they return to the land after 230 years. All these epochs are around the land and descendants. Abraham going down to Egypt, he comes back with an additional wife and a future son, Ishmael. It's about the land and the descendants. Jacob goes away and then comes back with more descendants. We see all these times where Adonai, it, it's like going away, going away into Egypt or going away and then coming back. But after Sinai, after the covenant at Horeb, we see the same pattern but with different elements. It's like different components. It's like building with, 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 with Legos. You use different blocks. It's the same pattern. The temple is in the land. We're in the land with the temple now. And then the temple is destroyed. We have our exile in Babylon and Persia. And then we go back to the land and rebuild the temple. At the time of Yeshua, the people were in the land, albeit under the Romans. They had their temple. They had their worship. They had their temple sacrifice. The temple had been rebuilt. And then they were dispersed and set into slavery. And then finally, in 1948, Israel was officially declared a nation state. And we're still waiting for that temple to be rebuilt. We have every expectation and anticipation, not just from the text, but just from the pattern of human history, that the temple worship will continue. At the time of Yeshua, the temple was destroyed. Judaism reformed without temple sacrifices. And the Judaism that you see practiced on the earth today is a variant of Judaism. It is a variant of practice. It is different than what you had at the time the Gospels and the Epistles were written. It's just a different format. So, Judaism, in a sense, Judaism itself is waiting for the temple to be rebuilt. And what are we waiting for? What are we in the kingdom waiting for? We're waiting for Yeshua to return. What is the, re the return of Yeshua going to bring? It's going to bring a new heavens and a new earth, ultimately, and a new Jerusalem, right? And in there, it says he will be the temple. Revelation chapter 21 says this, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And also I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then this, verse 22, I saw no temple in her, for its temple 
is Adonai Elohetzot in the Lamb. So in a sense, there's no temple building, but it does say there is a temple. The temple is Adonai himself. This is the ultimate conclusion. This is the finish line to this grand trajectory of human experience. The entire history of the world laid out in front of you ends in this. The final conclusion is the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and Adonai is its temple. So, we are not, we're not there yet. We're somewhere on the timeline, right? We're somewhere on the trajectory. So, so what does our life, life look like here and now? We are in the creation earth, then it will be destroyed and, and made new and made perfect. What we're dealing right now is facsimiles. What we're dealing right now is, is echoes of the past and foretellings of the future. Beth Yeshua is an echo of the past and a foretelling of the future as a congregation. That's what we are. Today, we, the body of Messiah, let me take this another step. We, the body of Messiah, the kingdom, the community of believers, are like Jerusalem in the earth. We function like Jerusalem in the earth. What does it say about this new heavens and new earth? What does it say about this new Jerusalem? It says the, the, the people will come. All the nations will come there. Today we function like that in a sense that we are a light to the nations. Your light should not be under a bushel. It should be broadcast to the nations. Today, we as believers individually function like a temple. The temple was the place where people can bring their sacrifices. They come and they bring their sacrifices and their offerings to bring their pleas to Adonai, to bring their, their request to Adonai. Remember uh, Hannah, Hannah's prayer. Uh, she didn't have a son. She desperately wanted a son. She prayed for a son. She came into the presence of God to pray and request a son. She brought her prayer into the presence of Adonai. When was the last time someone asked you to pray for them? When that happens, you are functioning like a temple to them. They are coming to you, and you are functioning like a temple and a priest to them, hearing their prayers, facilitating, facilitating their connection with Adonai. We function as priests in the hearing of prayers and in the assisting of offerings and sacrifices. When was the last time someone gave you a story of how Adonai provided for them or healed them? And as you listen and join in their prayers of thanksgiving, as you, as you say glory to God, Baruch Hashem, when you hear these testimonies, you're functioning like a priest in the temple. In the same way, I would bring my offering, my Ola offering or my thanksgiving offering my peace offerings, I would bring these into the temple and I would bring them to the priest and the priest would set them on the altar. And depending on the altar, on, on the sacrifice, perhaps the priest would share this sacrifice with me, perhaps it'd be for him, perhaps it's all burned up, but I bring this to him. In the same way, when people come to you and they share offerings of thanksgiving, you are functioning in that same way. When was the last time someone confessed an issue or a struggle or a sin or a transgression? and you listened to their broken spirit, and you asked Adonai to forgive them, to be gracious, knowing that he has and he will. You are functioning like a priest 
in the temple. I said, Beth Yeshua is an echo of the past and a foretelling of what's to come. You, individually, every single one of you, are an echo of the past and a foretelling of what's to come. But this is not the ultimate form. This is not the ultimate version. What we have here in this realm is not the final set. We have the new heavens and the new earth, and out of this will come the new Jerusalem, and out of this will come the, the, the temple, which is Adonai, and the sacrifices and the new covenant. These temple sacrifices that we read about in Leviticus and in Acts, the sacrifices we read about in the Tanakh and the Brechadashah, all of these, in the same way, when you tell your father or your mother you live them, you love them, but that you also honor them with deeds and gifts, it's not enough just to say that you love somebody unless you're willing to back it up with action. It's not enough to enter into a covenant without an eye unless you're willing to back it up with sacrifice. The temple sacrifices were a language of the covenant. The covenant language, if you will, is describing, is, is described by these temple sacrifices. And also the temple sacrifices were the practice of the covenant. It's what you did to, to exercise or to express the covenant. In the same way Yeshua in his crucifixion was a sacrifice. The sacrifice of Yeshua is the language and expression, the work and the deed of the new covenant. And in the same way, you and your sacrifices functioning like that are an expression of this covenant. Okay, perhaps you're saying, wait, I thought we were talking about Esther. And then we connected Esther into being sold into slavery and into this pattern of having something and losing something and having something and losing something. So let's try to close the loop on Esther. Mordecai becomes viceroy to the king. So Mordecai becomes number two to the king. Very influential and very powerful. Esther becomes the unquestionable queen. Together they had the ultimate influence in the kingdom in Shushan and Persia. Who is the most important man? Who's the most powerful man? Like in an organization. The most powerful man, number one, CEO, right? Actually, in my experience, it's number two. It's the second most powerful man that is actually the most powerful. Because here's the situation. The CEO has to make decisions, and his advisors give him the decisions that he has to make. And they say, you can choose A, B, or C. What would you like to do? And they say, well, what would you recommend? What do you suggest? Let's discuss this. And you discuss it. It's those people, those advisors. In, in, my, in my story, I've had multiple careers, telecommunications and technology and engineering and so forth. And, and over, I think, four or five times in my other previously professional life, I ended up in the num number two position. In, in various and assorted organizations and, and companies. And I kept ending up in number two by the favor of God, but I was never number one. And I used to occasionally, not often, but occasionally I'd say, I'd say okay, when is it going to be my turn? When do I get to be in charge, right? And then I realized, oh, wait, I'm actually more influential 
than they are. As number two, I'm actually more influential, and I have the freedom to not be the man in charge, but I have the freedom also to insert myself into these decisions that are making. And, and, and that was the story, and I was, I was blessed by, by the favor of Adonai. Here's what's happening. The viceroy and the queen, Mordecai and Esther, are incredibly influential in this court. Very powerful. I want to show you a very startling reference. We know the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra was commissioned to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah was commissioned to rebuild uh, the walls of Jerusalem. Two, two books, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. The two books are fascinating studies of how to live in a hostile world in covenant with Adonai. Very good studies. Just to get the context, Judah was taken, was defeated, sold out by their kings to Nebuchadnezzar, subsequently taken to Persia. We know that Shushan was the capital of Persia. This is where the story of Esther takes place. But look in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, um, uh, the, uh, the, the cupbearer here, was Nehemiah, is very sad. And so the king asked him, why are you sad? You know, I was very frightened. I said to my king, may the king live forever. Verse 3, why should my face not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king asked me, what is your request? Okay, this is the king of Persia. What is your request? He has a moment, just like Esther had a moment, Okay. And what does it say? I prayed to the God of heaven, verse 4, verse 5. I answered the king. Uh, if it seems good to the king, if your servant has found favor, send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried that I might rebuild it. And then we have this, verse 6. Look at this. Then the king, verse 6, please. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me. Why was the queen sitting beside him? Who was this queen? We might think this was Xerxes' queen, his bride, but it could well have been a previous queen. The timeline doesn't work technically for this to be Esther, the queen of Xerxes, but it could very well have been that she was still considered the queen because she was so powerful during her prime. We know that she was considerably younger than Ahasuerus, so she would have outlived him and she was considerably powerful and influential in that kingdom. And here we see her. She's sitting beside him. Esther the queen would have been incredibly powerful and influential. She would have likely have remained the queen even into the next monarch's reign. This Esther, who was so powerful in Ahasuerus' time, was positioned to be influential for years to come so that she would be able to influence the rebuilding of the temple in the walls of Jerusalem. So where are we now? Some 2,600 years later. We're like those Jews in Shushan. We have made a place for ourselves in the diaspora. The diaspora is not just a Jewish phenomenon. It's, 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 it's evident in the kingdom as well. The diaspora is, is Jews living in other countries, living and working in other countries, and yet they're still Jewish. In, in the kingdom, we have believers in Yeshua who might be Irish or, or, or Lebanese or, or American, but they're believers in the kingdom. We've made a place for ourselves in the diaspora. We have stayed in the land and built houses, as the text says. So here we are in the midst of the nations where we live, and we're waiting. What is it we're waiting for? 
The next thing we're waiting for is the rebuilding of the temple. The very next event on the calendar of humanity, the trajectory of human history, the very next big event is the rebuilding of the temple. And then we're waiting for his, Yeshua's, imminent return. Our hope is in things to come. The provision of God's mercy and his grace is to, to sustain and deliver us, to accomplish his good will, his good work. Even in these times, it may seem like Adonai is silent. Many look at the book of Esther and wonder why there's no mention of God. It's only by reference that she prayed and they fasted. But there's no mention of God. It's the only book, book of the Bible that doesn't mention Adonai, Adonai directly. In our days, it seems as if, as if Adonai is silent. I know there's a lot of people who claim to be prophets, but it seems as if Adonai is silent. Yes, you can connect with Adonai in your heart, in your spirit, but we don't hear from him the way our ancestors heard from him. In the epochs of history, we have many dark ages, times in history where the world languished in its own sin, where sin becomes such a fixture in culture and society. Times like before the flood, where even the ground was corrupted by the sin of the people at Babel, the Tower of Shinar in, in, in Babel, uh, Jacob and Haran, Egypt with its apparent sanctuary, which then becomes a curse of enslavement, to Babylon, to per Persia, to the fall of the temple in 70 AD, throughout the medieval periods with its rampant corruption and violence. The only bright spot in history in the last 2,000 years was the Reformation, but even still, after the Reformation, with all of its potential, we ended up with pogroms and holocausts and genocide under various communist peoples. To, to paraphrase Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Sachs writes of Hanukkah and Purim, at Hanukkah, Antiochus tried to destroy Judaism. At Purim, Haman tried to destroy the Jews. And in the last hundred years, the Nazis tried to destroy the Jews and the communists tried to destroy Judaism. So these are the dark places when you don't hear the voice of Adonai, when the kings of this age ponder and mull over how to defeat and destroy the kingdom of Adonai, like the book of Esther as they cast poor and discussed what to do with them. Perhaps Adonai is seemingly silent and far away, but his inaction is only perception by us because we do not truly see with eyes to see. In the same way, the story of Esther set the groundwork to accomplish the rebuilding of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem. There is work being done right now to set the groundwork for revival, the return of the King Yeshua and the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and ultimately for the people of Adonai to dwell there forever in peace and security. That is the final ultimate deliverance from our enemies and from our sin alike. And that, my friends, is the trajectory of history. That is the entire plan of humanity. Hag Purim Sameach. Once again, Shabbat Shalom.